Well, Christmas is three days away. Three days away. Uh, amazing to think about that, right? Uh, hopefully, you've done a lot of your shopping. Uh, I know my wife and I, we uh, were doing some of our wrapping last uh, yesterday, actually yesterday afternoon, and uh, so hopefully you've done all that as well. If not, you still got a little bit of time. But we were also here this uh, last, uh, yesterday morning as well, uh, helping with New Covenant uh, Ministries and wrapping, and there's so many different families there, and everyone that was helping. It was just really cool to see, and so I just want to thank you guys, and just really super proud of you guys. Thank you for all that you're doing, uh, just serving, you know. It was really, really cool to see that. And I know there's a lot of different other ways that uh, many of you are serving and helping, and uh, so thank you for doing all that. But Christmas, if you don't know, is all about one person, right? It's all about Jesus. Jesus. And where Christmas can sometimes feel like an interruption to our daily schedules, Jesus wants you to see that this is a divine interruption for you and not something that is a positive divine interruption, not something that's a negative thing. So we've been looking at this sermon series of divine interruption of, and looking at what happened in Bethlehem and what did Jesus come to do. And so Pastor Eric Jarvis talked about that. And then you heard Pastor Marty last week talk about what, what did Jesus come to do? Now, today, I just want to ask the question, why Jesus? Why Jesus? What's so special about Jesus? Who did Jesus, more importantly, who did Jesus say he is? And why that's so important? And that's what I want to answer today. The question of who did Jesus say he is and why that's so important for your identity to know who you are in this story. Because... Jesus wants you to know who you are in light of who he is. In fact, this theme of identity for, in a lot of our uh, Christmas movies, it deals with identity. A lot of our Christmas movies deal with identity. Uh, the character trying to figure out who they are. I mean, you can think about A Christmas Carol. Uh, that's something that uh, Scrooge is trying to figure out. Uh, the Grinch, I mean, he's trying to figure that out. It's a Wonderful Life. Um, die Hard. You could debate that around the Christmas dinner table if you want, but I think it is a Christmas movie. Um, but one of my personal favorites is Elf. How many love the Christmas movie Elf, right? Um, some of you even want to, like, applause for that, you know? You love it so much. But I love it. That's one of my favorite movies, uh, Elf. Uh, I'll even watch it in July if I, sometimes just because it's so good. And you see, in that movie, Buddy the Elf, he's not really an elf, but he's trying to figure out who he is once he finds out that he's not an elf. You see, he snuck into Santa's bag, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, and, um, and he, he snuck into Santa's bag as he was at an orphanage, and he, growing up he had no idea that he was a human, and he thought he was an elf, and then one one day it dawns on him that he's not an elf, and he's just uh, totally thrown off by all this, and then he meets his buddy Leo the snowman. You gotta watch it if you're not tracking with me. And, and he tells him, uh, he tells him, you know, buddy, this is a great opportunity for you to know who you really are by trying to find your father in that great magical place, New York City. And so he tells them, and he says, this is a great opportunity to know who you are by finding your father, to know your identity. And you see, we all have a story. We all have a story, and we all are trying to seek out who we are in this story. 
What is our identity? What's our role? What's our purpose? But where do we look to understand for who we are in this story? A lot of times, though, we look to ourselves, right? Culture tells you to look to yourself. I mean, you've heard it said, be true to yourself. You're trying to—they're pointing you to look into yourself. Or no one can tell you what is right or wrong. Do what makes you feel happy. And there's daily activities in our movies as well and in social media and in music that are always just pushing on you. Sometimes you don't even realize it. The narrative of, well, to find out who you are, look to yourself. Look to you. And actually, the real place to look and to find— who we are is not to look inside ourselves, but to but look outside of ourselves. It's kind of like uh, like you were an actor in a play. You, you can't look inside yourself to figure out the part that you've just been assigned. Like my daughter was in the play um, Macbeth uh, just recently, and she got a part there, and um, it was actually uh, a little twist on Macbeth, that Shakespeare play. It was set in Star Wars, the galaxy. It was actually called Scottish Play in a Galaxy Far, Far Away. It was really cool. Um, And for her to understand the part that she has to play, she can't just look inside and say, okay, this is the character that I think I should be. She had to look outside and look at the script of what it, her character is, who her character is. She had to look at, okay, who is this character? What do they do? What is the lines that they have? So she could understand who she is. She had to look outside of herself. Sure, she brings her personality into it, but she had to look outside to understand the part that she plays. And for you and I to understand who we are, we need to look outside of ourselves. So where do you look to understand I, I talked about the culture and the world where we, we generally look to understand who we are. But what about you? Where do you look? Do you look to your job? Do you look to your achievements to understand who you are? Do you look sometimes materially what you have, the latest iPhone or where you live or kids, whether you have AirPods or whether you have wired earbuds, you know? Do you, do you look to those things to understand who you are? Or do we, do we look to personality tests, which, which are great. They're fun to do. How many of you know of the Enneagram? Some of you are a little bashful about that. But a lot of you know that. It's really popular right now. I'm a three. Uh, look it up if you don't know what that is. But, you know, those things are fun. Do it. I encourage you to do it. You get to know a little bit more about yourself. It describes you, but it doesn't define you. It doesn't define you and who you are and what you're created for and what you're here to be. Or do you look to understand who you are based on past experiences? What type of family you grew up in? Maybe you went through a traumatic experience. Maybe you divorced. Maybe you know, you're married. Maybe you, you've been abused. Do those things filter into understanding who you are? They're all important, but ultimately the truth to find out who you are is to look outside of yourself. To look outside of yourself and to the person of Jesus and understanding who he said he is. And so that's my main point for you to grasp. I want you to know this. To know who you are. Know who Jesus said he is. This is the importance of the Christmas story. To know who you are, know who Jesus said he is. Well, who did he say he is? Who did he say of himself? Well, there's a title that he always referred to himself over and over and over again. If you look throughout all the Gospels, this was the number one title he always called about himself to describe of who he was. 
And it's this term, the son of man. The son of man. Look at one case in, uh, just in Matthew chapter 26, in verse 62. And Jesus before the high priest, uh, ready to be crucified actually. And, and he refers to himself with this title. And he says this, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? So he's on trial before the high priest. What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then look at the high priest's response. The high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. What would cause such a reaction by the high priest when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man? Even death to tell him that he's uttering blasphemy. Why such a reaction? Why did Jesus not even use the, the Messiah title? of the anointed king, of the Christ, the one, the Messiah, the one that Israel was waiting for, the promised king. Why, why didn't he not use that over and over? But he used this term, the son of man. Why did he use that? Well, it comes from chapter uh, 7 in Daniel, in the Old Testament, in one of the prophets. And to help you understand this theme of the Son of Man, I just want you to watch this video by the Bible Project. And they put it, they put it so well together to help you understand this theme of the Son of Man tracing all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Check it out. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ. That is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms. 
which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain. He was jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him, and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence, and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved, having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up, and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right. There hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human. And he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more, all humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Oh, worship? So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God-human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives. And he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, From this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device. But Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst. And then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast. And as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now, Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus-style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. If your mind's ready to explode after that, uh, but they do a really good job summarizing all that. Let me break it down for you then. To know who you are, again, the point, come back to that point. To know who you are, know who Jesus said he is, specifically in the story of the Son of Man. Why? 
Why? Because first, it shows that you have a part to play. If as you were watching that video, I don't know if it dawned on you, it shows that you and I were created to have a part to play. You see, Jesus adopted the phrase Son of Man from Daniel 7 here, where he said in verse 13, let me just read it again, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, meaning a human one, as you heard in the story. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And so, as the video was explaining, this chapter, Daniel 7, is just summarizing the whole storyline of the Bible. I don't know if you realize that. This chapter right here, summarizing from the very beginning of Genesis and even actually going all the way to Revelation. It's summarizing the fact that we, as humanity, were created to image God. And that the Son of Man would come and bring a new humanity where finally where we would realize our ideal purpose that God has created for us as human beings. It starts all the way back in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where you hear where it says about us being created in the image of God. And if you read verse 26, we'll say it on the screen. You can follow along. Then God said, let us make man in our image. What does that mean? It means, yeah, we could think, we could, you know, reason, but it's, there's actually a task, a role that that is supposed to mean. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, you see, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. There's that word again. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the biblical story begins with God appointing humans to be his royal images. That is, representatives who rule over creation and that represent his love and his wisdom. I mean, partnering with God with this over his creation and that this is a part of every human being's identity to rule as an expression of God's love and wisdom over this world and to partner with him in this world of what he created it. Now, why is that so important? So what? Because, guys, you have a part to play. Every human being has a purpose here. No matter how unique and diverse you are and that we are, every person has a part to play. You represent God's love and God's wisdom to others in creation in this way. I mean, you get to partner with God in this. Think about that. Really think about that. I mean, I remember some of the most memorable moments for me growing up as a kid was when I got to partner with my dad and doing some project around the house, whatever it may be. Whether it was cutting the lawn, and sometimes, yeah, I, I grumbled about having to do that, but doing that with him or, or getting the keys to the car to do some errand of some sort, or whatever it may be, the fact that I got to do this with my dad and he trusted me with this was a thrilling thing. But Think about this. You get to partner with God. God, who gives you the keys to this creation to represent his love and his wisdom, to image him. This means that no matter what you do, 
guys. No matter what you do, whether you're a janitor or whether you're a crane operator or whether you are an engineer or whether you are just a mom that stays at home, you're not just a mom that stays at home. You have a huge task. Or whether you're a mom that has to work or whether you're a, you know, a, a father that maybe has to stay at home for whatever reason, for a season of life. No matter what you are doing, whatever it is, You have a part to play in imaging God to the world. There's no sacred job and a secular job in God's eyes. Every job is sacred in God's eyes. You don't have to be a pastor and think that's somehow, that's a greater thing to do that really images God. That's not true. Everything that you do here, any job, is an opportunity to image Him, to represent His love and His expression of His wisdom. Yeah, amen. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Even for kids, too. You're not maybe working, but your role even in the home and in the church and, and even with your friends, you have the opportunity to image God. You don't have to wait till you grow up and get a job. You were created in His image to partner with God. This also means that no matter what personality you may have, I mean, a lot of, if the stats are right, a lot of us are more introverts than extroverts. Uh, That's okay. That's great. You can still image God well. No matter what your personality may be on the Enneagram, whether you're one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Some of you probably think you're a 10 and off the charts for some reason. But, you know, no matter what you are, whatever personality it is, God uses to image his love and to image his wisdom. To know who you are. Know who Jesus said he is in the story of the Son of Man. Because it shows you and I that we have a part to play to image God. But you should be asking a question as you wrestle with this. Why don't we always image him well? Why don't we image his love and his wisdom? I mean, marriages fall apart. Broken relationships. We sometimes at at our job, we want to get ahead of the other. And we do something that we either lie or subtly try to put the other person down so we can get ahead. Why do we do these things? Why? Well, the story of the Son of Man shows you why you fail to play your part. To know who you are, know who Jesus said he is in the story of the Son of Man because it shows why you fail to play your part. You see, Daniel 7, uh, verse 3, if I could turn your attention there, describing Daniel's dream, he sees four great beasts come out of the sea, different from one another. I mean, what, what's going on here? Why, why beasts? Why use this metaphor well, animal, animal imagery is one of the most common metaphors to describe sin, human violence, and evil in the Bible. As you even saw in that video, you can trace back to Genesis 3, where the snake, right, shows humans corrupted by the snake, and we seize authority to define good and evil by our own wisdom. The Bible calls sin rebellion against God. Genesis 4 then shows the effect of sin when Cain was, was looking to get at his brother Abel and it, where God tells him to be careful. And he describes sin in verse 7 in chapter 4 when he says, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching, crouching like a, like a lion or like a tiger or an animal, a beast that's ready to pounce. But Cain doesn't rule over it. 
and he actually kills his brother. And then you can see all throughout the Bible this animal imagery just used to describe sin and human violence. And you come into Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, if you know about him, the king of Babylon. And he, at one point, you know, he says, look at all that I've, I've achieved. And he does not give God the uh, recognition for what God has given to him. And he's reduced to the, the status of a, like a mindless animal. And he's crawling on the ground. It's used to describe that sin. And then you see in Daniel 7 where it's portrayed human kings, portrayed as senseless beasts uh, ruling. You see, instead of ruling the animals, catch this, instead of ruling the animals as we are created and creation, we become like the animals. We become like beasts. And we hurt each other and we fight against each other in order to survive and exalt ourselves at the expense of the other people. You see, the story of the Son of Man shows why you fail to play your part because we act like beasts in one another. We can be like this to each other. We, we exalt ourselves at the expense of others and hurt each other. We fight against each other. And so many times we're unaware of this and we think it's the outside of us. It's not me that's the problem. It's, it's this or that person, what they did. So many times in marriages we see this, counseling others in marriages. You, you ask Pastor Brent when he talks with people that are married, so many times we don't own our own junk and that we are being a beast Yes, yeah, so that other person may be doing that too. But Scripture tells us, turn your eyes first to yourself before you try to look at what the, the beast that that person's being. And we're so unaware that there's an internal problem inside of us. It's not just that we do bad things. There's something wrong with us. Like a, like a computer that's corrupted by a virus and it prevents it from actually carrying out its purpose of what it's called to do. And so many times we were unaware of this and we forget there's something inside us that needs to change. But the solution is not you to fix that inside you. Yeah, you need a change inside, but the solution is not in you and inside of you. Because to know who you are, you need to know who Jesus said he is as the Son of Man. Because in that story, it shows us who is the one that can fix that inside of you. And that is Jesus. Jesus is the one that restores you to play your part, not you. Jesus is the one. You see, God made a promise in Genesis 3, verse 15, that, that a human born of a woman would come one day who would defeat evil. A human. Just track with me on that. As you remember in that video, a human would come to do this. And this theme develops through the biblical story as God just continues to raise up people Kings, prophets, prophetesses, but they all fail in some way. They all fail in some way and, and not truly being able to image God in that perfect way. So the next generation has to wait. Who's go is he going to come? Is, he gonna, is this human one that's going to come that has been promised? Will, that, will they, this person be it? Will this king be it? And so if you read the Old Testament, you have to patiently keep reading and you see that one after another, humans fail at this. But then you come to the New Testament and you'll see 
who this human being is. Which is why in Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14, you'll see he describes this human figure as the Son of Man, whom God exalts above the beasts to rule beside him. So look what it says in verse 13 and 14. And say with me on this. It says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there come, they came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. That's, that's God as he sees him on his throne. And was presented before him. So if you remember that little image, you know, of, of, of Jesus, of this human one before God. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Or in other words, that word in Hebrew, worship him, some translations will say. Worship him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom's one, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here's this human, as he sees in this dream, put on that throne that was empty, that promised human one. And then he's worshiped. Now, wait a minute. Humans can't be worshiped. God alone is the only one that could be worshiped, unless. This is a God-man. So are you tracking with me? You see why Jesus adopts then that phrase as the Son of Man. He is the human one. He is the divine human that we all need. He is the divine human that would overcome the animal inside our nature and raise humanity back to the glorious destiny that God created us to experience. That Jesus' death was God's condemnation of our animal beastly violence that we produce to each other and his resurrection was his loving victory over the powers of death and evil that exists inside you. And he gives you a new identity, a totally new identity, a new creation in Christ. This is what Jesus comes to do. And this is why Jesus, the Son of Man, is the one that can only do this in you. He shows you and I what we are to truly be as human, but he is also the one that can only be the one to fix what's inside of you. And he does that through his death and his resurrection. So that you can have a new identity in Christ. In and through Jesus, God has become what we are so that we can become what he is and share in his divine love and life. This is the story of the Son of Man. To know who you are know who Jesus said he is in the story of the Son of Man. Because it shows, guys, that Jesus is the one that restores you. Not you. Now that may sound so simple, and you're like, yeah, I, I, I believe that. But as Christians, sometimes we slip back into that old identity, and we forget this new identity that we've been given. And sometimes we start to root our identity in our problems or in our performance. What I mean by that is sometimes we root our identity in our past problems, things that we've done or we've experienced. I've been sinning like this over and over and over again. I can't get rid of this sinful habit. Or we start to root our identity in I'm divorced. Or I root my identity, I'm widowed. Or I root my identity that I have no friends. There's something wrong with me. We start to root our identity in these things and these experiences. While they are significant experiences and they are real, they are not your core identity of who you are in Christ. Those things happen, but that's not your identity. 
or we start to root it in our performances. As Christians, we get caught up into this. We don't root it in Jesus. We root our identity in how well we're doing the Christian life. And so when we're reading our Bible and we're not sinning and we're doing really well, we're up here on cloud nine. And then when we're not doing well, when we've sinned or we're just going through a rough patch in life, we're down here. Because we're rooting our identity in our performance and how well we're living the Christian life and not Jesus and what he says about you and how you are a new creation in Christ and how he looks at you as his child. Do you, are you tracking with me? Sometimes we can do that. And what's so important to see that Jesus is the one who restores you and I to play our part. And our identity is in him. And the fact that Jesus is alone, the only one. But you know what the, the beauty of this also in the story of the Son of Man that we find out? Is that every human being qualifies to be restored. Every human being. You don't, you, you don't have to have done past things that you feel like, no, God would never accept me or love me or even want to restore me. No, every human being is qualified. John three sixteen when it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, stick on that phrase right there, that word, whoever, not those who are doing pretty good in life, those who are righteous, those who are wealthy, those who are, no, it's whoever. Whoever, that includes every human being. Every human being can experience the restoration and the redemption that Jesus brings. You can experience that. Every human being. There's no one that is too lost or too far gone. As you're going to be with relatives and people that you interact with at Christmas time, you may think that. And you may feel that when you're interacting. But no one is apart from experiencing God's grace. No one is too far. No one is unable to experience the grace and the love that Jesus can bring to their life. Whoever. That means anyone can receive the redemption and restoration that Jesus can bring. To know who you are. Know who Jesus said he is as the Son of Man. And not just know him, but receive him. Receive him. Because you can know that when you look to Jesus and you receive him, in John 1.12 it says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You can know that that is your identity. A child of God. The child who came. God who became a child. God who took on human flesh of a child. Came so that you and I could be restored and be his child. A child of God. What I want you to do is just to bow your heads and I want to pray with you. To know who you are, know who Jesus said he is as the Son of Man. And it's not just knowing, as I said. It's also receiving. It's trusting him. It's just like Christmas time with presents. You may have presents in front of you, but it does no good looking just at the presents. 
You actually have to receive it. Unwrap it. Own it. And for some of us here, we've never done that with Jesus. And for you, this is the first time that you're taking that step. To receive all that Jesus said is. And to to know of who you are and knowing Jesus' identity, you're going to say, yes, I want to be that child of God. And I receive Jesus, what he did for me, so that I could be called his child. And for many of us as Christians here, we just need to be reminded of that again. We've been rooting our identity in our problems, maybe, or in our performance of how well we're doing. And we need to be reminded again this Christmas time to know who we are. We need to know and receive who Jesus said he is as the Son of Man. And so all of us should be praying this and saying, Jesus, I want to receive you. And I have re- even if you received him before, you have trusted him and you are following Jesus, but we need to daily, we know that we, we need to root again and again our identity in what he has done for us. And knowing that all that he did is why we are his children. So Jesus... We're asking you to come right now. We know that you're here. It's not enough just for us to know you right now. But even as we sing, come thou long expected Jesus. We're singing about something that was longing on, on, on such a character of like Simeon as we just read earlier in the service. Who's was longing for the Savior. But Lord, we could sing that also because, God, we need that each and every day. We need our identity to be rooted in you, Jesus, and what you came to do and who you are so that we can know who we are. And so, Jesus, as we sing this, may this be a prayer even of our heart. Saying, come. Come to me. Be with me. I receive you. In Jesus' name, amen.